Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so we're back from last week where we were talking about bubbles and further application from behavioral finance and investor psychology in the marketplace relative to the efficient market theory and all that kind of stuff. So we've been looking at bubbles in history and how those relate to the analog of today in cryptocurrencies and whether or not you could assess cryptocurrencies as being in a bubble and the extent that the impact of the factors that are contributing to the current environment of cryptocurrencies relative to what you can expect going forward. So let's jump right back into the discussion. I mentioned about the dot-com bubble. What was the environment mm -hmm. leading up to that and the whole tech boom? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, it was the internet was, was just kind of in its infancy. And I mean, Yahoo was developed, or actually Yahoo was launched, I think around the year 1995 or 1996. The internet at, at this time was just going crazy. And all these companies like Pets.com were propping up and, and, and eToys, right? And pets.com and toys were supposed to replace, you know, brick and mortar stores like Petco and then, and then Toys yeah. R Us. And these companies weren't, weren't making any money. I mean, they kept taking losses and losses and losses. And I remember the analysts at the time, you know, said, well, it could be a problem, but we're, this is a new economy is what they were saying. So the old rules of making profits don't really apply in the new economy. That you know, look, look like back. today, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, in, in all in all fairness, I mean, Amazon.com, which was launched at the same time, they were taking losses during that time too, and look at look at them today. But that that whole thing was was another speculative bubble, and the whole internet frenzy in this new business environment called the internet and internet retailers, and everyone was just trying to launch some kind of a new internet retailing company. These IPOs were just going crazy, and these little rinky little companies. I remember reading about this one company that they wanted to be like the next Walmart except online and people were sending back products that they were buying and they just filled up this whole warehouse full of returns and they didn't know what to do with it and it was just it's just a big disaster. But this was like a stock market bubble, which is a lot different from cryptocurrency bubble because you know, with stocks you could actually look at the underlying fundamentals of a company and realize are earnings and revenues growing enough to justify the price to earning ratio of purchasing this firm people weren't even thinking about it like that they're just like well it just keeps going up and up and up and up and i'm just going to buy it i'm going to buy e-toys i'm going to buy pets.com even though they're burning through cash and you know just let the chips fall where they may that's pretty much my take on that yeah i also think Here's the analogy that I see with the dot-com bubble with cryptocurrencies right now is obviously the speculation and the increase in stock prices was based on a vision of the future where the internet right. was this mm -hmm. new emerging technology and people saw they had this long-term vision of the potential and the economies of scale of the internet, which I would argue was actually accurate in a certain sense. Like to go from a brick and mortar it was store, yeah. to go from a brick and mortar store to an online store that could potentially reach anyone in the world if you have the supply chain to reach it is huge. And to think that one person starting an online business in their garage in San Francisco 
could potentially reach anyone in the world with their information and then potentially even their services or products, depending on how they're sold, is an incredible, incredible, incredible invention and a way for businesses to tap into economies of scale, even from a very young age, and to really reduce the barriers of entry for businesses to get started. So in that mm -hmm. sense, I would say that there was a fundamental reason for the tech boom and, and the rampant speculation that led to the dot-com bubble. But I guess you could say that it was kind of like that vision got everyone kind of ahead of their skis and way too crazy about it. And because you had the economic stimulation of the 80s, where money was just being pumped into the economy, and the Fed had tried to deal with stagflation back in like the late 70s and early uh, 80s. Yeah. Uh, so then you had interest rates coming down from 20% down to mm -hmm. uh, 6 then again, that's ultra stimulative as well. So mm -hmm. I think you combine those two together. And you really had the opportunity for what you were talking about, Murray, of like all these companies just IPOing left and right and coming out with like huge valuations mm -hmm. that didn't matter if there was profit as long as there was just expanding revenue. And I do think mm -hmm. that kind of sounds like today, I'm not thinking as much about the cryptocurrencies, but just stocks and companies in general today as a follow on to the economic stimulation of 2009 and since with the QE and QE2 and QE3, all this stuff that you just have companies like Uber whose valuation is like $60 billion valuations and they can't manage to make a profit even though they service people throughout the world and are like doing an incredible business and yet are burning through a billion and a half dollars or whatever it is. And Uber hasn't even gone public yet. Yeah, yeah that's true. Or Snapchat too. Yeah. Snapchat IPO'd earlier this year and they're burning through tons of cash and Tesla is burning through tons of cash. And for the time being, it doesn't seem to matter and the stocks can still continue flying high. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying on a stock basis, maybe not the cryptocurrency, but at least the stock basis, that's kind of reminding me of what you're describing in the dot-com environment. Mm -hmm. And isn't Amazon.com doing that now? I mean, isn't pretty much Amazon doing what they thought every internet company was going to do during the dot-com boom? I mean, well, it's... Yeah, that, so that's what I'm saying about, I think the vision was there and we're now seeing the reality take place. It's just the vision got a little ahead of where reality was. And so the analogy to the current situation with cryptocurrencies could be similar in that the vision of these electronic currencies that are decentralized away from governments that can't be printed infinitely the way fiat currencies currently are, maybe mm -hmm. that vision is correct in a sense, or at least that value is there, but maybe that vision is a lot further out than the actual reality of it. And maybe the fundamental implementation, the market is ahead of the skis of that situation actually occurring potentially. Yeah, that, this all reminds me of, like, if you go back to the 70s when Larry Ellison was really trying to push Oracle and the uh, whole idea of relational databases was a, a novel concept at the time, but it was something he was adamant about. He had a strong vision for it. And now you look at the times today, it's like we have so many things that are so many data receptors, you know, our phones or our watches or televisions, like so many applications and Data is just consistently being consumed and created. And so the idea of relational databases is where like, where information is more fluid in, in terms of uh, consumption and, and transmission is something where if you were to time travel back to the 70s, someone would be like, what? You mean you could connect your, my toaster to the internet? Like, how do you do that? <laughs> so 
Yeah, so I think it is that challenge of the ambition of the entrepreneur or say of the business environment and, and the current landscape and, and how those how that conflict, you know, over time meets itself out is, is always interesting to learn from. So this is kind of like going out of order and back to the cryptocurrency situation. If you think about all the stimulation that has happened since 2009 with central banks around the world, not just the U.S., and all the quantitative easing programs that have pumped so much money into the economy. In fact, you have the ECB in Europe that is still doing their form of QE in buying corporate debt. That is the breeding ground for bubbles. Like that is what creates bubbles. When you're pumping money into the economy, then that means that there's more money to go around and you want to put it to use somewhere. So that means there's right. potential for rampant speculation to happen. And that's the negative side of putting so much money in the economy. So the other side of that mm -hmm. coin is then when the central banks decide, okay, we want to pump the brakes on the economy and start to rein in interest rates or stimulation in whatever form. And then that causes people to reassess where they're putting their money and become more conservative and then can burst bubbles. Right. And I'm even concerned about countries like Japan, where they have a lot of debt, like sovereign debt on their books. There's an older demographic of the, in terms of the working population. And so if you're like a sovereign entity, how do you work to pay off those debts? And so I feel like that's more of a, a looming bubble, per se, than I'd say other parts, other economies in the world. Japan is toast. They're just zombie walking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but three hundred and fifty percent debt to GDP, and an average <laughs> average age of the population of like fifty five or whatever. Like that is a, a recipe for disaster. Actually, I'm kind of more concerned more in the short term with China than I am Japan. Japan seems problems in the long term, but but China with their banking sector and how over leveraged it is. Because I, you know, I've studied history. We, we're going to get into the twenties next, but in China. The banking system is just as leveraged as the U.S. banking system was in the late 1920s. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 pretty bad over there. And you had for a long time, Chinese banks were just create constructing all these ghost cities and just just erecting all these incredible urban structures, and nobody's living in them. I mean, I, I've like checked out the balance sheets of Japanese banks, Chinese banks, European, North American, and China is is, is the worst leverage out of all of them. Talk about a bubble. There's a banking bubble in China going on right now, so it's it's pretty bad right now, and and I, I kind of see that bubble bursting within the next ten years or so, and it's going to be bad for the entire world economy. At least that's that's my prediction anyway. That's the trouble though with trying to call out bubbles or time them is that the market can be irrational a lot longer than you can be solvent, and bubbles can <laughs> continue on a lot longer than you think they should. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the confusing part of it and just trying to figure it out is like you can see something is clearly not right or seems irrational and yet it can stay mm -hmm. irrational for a long time. That's exactly right. Yeah. And banks have, have remained technically insolvent for years and yet the, the banks can still operate. And as long as there's not a run on the bank, the, the bank can remain in business indefinitely. And so that's one of the problems with, with the banking sector in general as well, too. Yeah. So you hit that one on the head, man. I think that's a, a good segue into the Roaring Twenties and the crash of 29, mm -hmm. the Great Depression. Walk us through that. To go back during the, the 1920s, thing, we have to go even further than that. And I would say that has to, the root of the, the crash of 1929 starts with the creation of the Federal Reserve back in 1913. 
And the Federal Reserve was created because you had a lot of bubbles back then. You had the economic cycles of boom and bust and banks were failing and being created and failing again. And so, but the Federal Reserve did two things. One, it created just a central banking system and centralized currency creation and currency. But they also had something called the discount window. And what the discount window was, it was similar actually to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in that that banks could take loans that they made to the public and sell those loans to the Fed and the Fed would give them cash for it. And so you had a problem and that that would create an incentive of banks making poor loans because they didn't have to keep, they could make a loan, they didn't have to keep it on its books. They could, they knew that they could just discount that loan with the Fed. And so you had banks getting into really speculative ventures, including making loans in the stock market. And back during that time, I remember reading historical accounts. I mean, there was just an absolute just speculative frenzy going on in stocks. But another thing, another phenomenon that that added to that was that margin requirements were very loose back in those days. Like today, the stock margin requirement is 50%. So it's basically 50% down. So with with $1,000, you could buy $2,000 of stock. Back then, it was around 10%. At least that was the absolute minimum. So with $1,000, you could buy $10,000 in stock. But I, I also have a theory I'd like to present. When the stock market crashed in the late 1920s, it actually had a, a 90% correction, which is astonishing. It's stunning when you think about that because in the 0809 crash, the stock market went down about, I would say, 53% from its peak. And in the dot-com, it went down from about around 50% from its peak. And then in the 73-74 correction, it was about upper 40 percentage crash. My theory is this, because of the margin requirements, the lax margin requirements in the late 1920s of being only 10%, it caused a 90% correction. So my theory is this, when the stock market corrects, like for instance, we're in a, a massive stock market bubble now. I mean, forget Bitcoin, I mean, the stock market's going crazy too. But when we go into a bear market, I really believe that the average, I believe the drawdown is going to be around 50%. It might be 40 or it might be 60, but it's going to be around that time just because of those margin requirements. And because you had loose margin requirements of 10% back in the late 20s, you can kind of see the cause and effect relationship, why that, why that stock market drawdown was so drastic back in the late 1920s. But that's a theory. But on the margin requirements, it's actually very stimulative to be cutting requirements in the same way we were talking about the housing bubble or the housing boom where down payments went from 20% required down to zero. That's extremely stimulative to demand and enabling buyers. And in the same way for stock margin requirements, if you go from 50% margin requirement, meaning you have to put down $50 <coughs> to buy $100 worth of stock, and then you go down to 10% margin requirement, meaning you only have to put down $10 to buy $100 worth of stock. If they did that today, the market could go up another 50%. The market would explode if it did that. Yeah, so but, absolutely. Yeah. But just because that sounds good for the short term, it doesn't mean it's good for the long term because then that enhances the instability and the solvency in the market. Mm -hmm. And if you get the, the banking sector, which is highly leveraged in itself, and they're making stock market loans, it'll make the bubble even even bigger than that. Yeah. After that whole after that whole collapse in the nineteen thirties, you know, they just they instituted a lot of legislation, you know, they, they instituted the Glass Steagall Act, 
which pretty much separated commercial banking from investment banking. And I noticed coincidentally in the year 1999, the Glass-Steagall Act was repealed. And so in less than 10 years after 1999, you know, we had the housing, the housing market crash because apparently banks were getting involved in that and that side as well. So that business wasn't separated. Which actually goes against the idea of pure unrestrained capitalism in terms of showing an example where some regulation in the form of Glass-Steagall after the Depression restricted banks in certain ways from what they were able to do. And then when it was lifted mm -hmm. and that restriction was negated, then banks now unfettered went crazy and then made mistakes that then cost the economy. Now, mm -hmm. whether or not that creative destruction is acceptable and beneficial for what we want in society, that's a kind of a debatable question, but I think it's worth noting. Creative destruction, I like that term. <laughs> no, that actually is a term coined by Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, oh, okay. okay. All right, so to take it back even a step further in history to look at an even older bubble in the UK in the early 1700s, you had the South Sea Bubble, which was the South Sea Company, which was a, a shipping company. Investors kind of went crazy for the stock at that point in time because stocks weren't as common back then as they are today, but it was a, a shipping company and there were other similar shipping companies that were already very successful. You had the Dutch East Indian Company and ones like that mm -hmm. that were making tons of money. Shipping and trade was a valuable service back then. But anyway, they were issuing stock all the way back then and demand for the stock was really high. But then you had investors that thought the company would have a government-guaranteed monopoly on shipping trade to the Spanish colonies. So that was the big contributor there. Everybody thought, we know about Dutch East India Company and others like that that have just had incredible businesses. So if the South Sea Company gets a government monopoly on trade with the Spanish colonies, then that's just game over. Nothing can stop this company. So mm -hmm. right. Just to put this in perspective, the prices back then went from 128 to over 1,000. That's pretty insane for a company. But then when you start to think of in terms of Bitcoin, you're like, oh, well, it doesn't sound that crazy anymore. <laughs> 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 but the thing that was different with the South Sea Company versus, for example, the Dutch East India Company is that how a company is run matters in the end. It's not just like how high a stock price is. If the company is managed poorly, it can't do well. That contributed a lot to the downfall of the South Sea Company. Just because it was a shipping company in a good business, the managers were bad at doing their jobs and didn't manage the company well, and they spent a bunch of money excessively, which was kind of like what was happening back in the tech bubble and in the housing bubble. So what I found out from this is that apparently the management of the company, the insiders in the company, realized that they were managing the company poorly, and then they started to try to <laughs> quietly sell their shares. But eventually the news leaked out to the public that they're trying to get out, which then just created a domino effect and everyone trying to get out of the door at the same time and just caused a complete crash in the stock. Yeah, it was very similar to Enron, what happened with, with the South Sea Trading Company. Yeah. yeah, I just think it's pretty interesting because that is a good example. It goes all the way 300 years back but it's like the same kind of phenomenons that you see today, which mm -hmm. goes to show you that history repeats itself and then it's valuable to be looking at these historical examples 
and take the analog from them. That's why I think this discussion, Dallas, is really useful for your listeners because it allows to, to study the history of, of asset bubbles. Investors are actually playing defense as opposed to just trying to make money, you know, protect yourself from losing money, to protect yourself from losing a fortune. And actually the most famous investor who lost money in the South Sea Trading Company was Sir Isaac Newton. And, and he famously said, I, I can calculate the movements of heavenly bodies, but not the badness of men, is what he said. <laughs> right. That's pretty classic. Yeah, and, and he was just a famous mathematician. You think someone as great, as brilliant mathematically as he was would be a brilliant investor when, in fact, he wasn't. Even Sir Isaac Newton could really notice the bubble that was taking place. But that phenomenon was interesting. But also, historically, the Bank of England made a lot of loans to the company. And company insiders were actually taking proceeds that the Bank of England made to them, and they were using that to buy and sell shares of South Sea Trading Company. And so they were actually trying to manipulate the stock itself. And then it just, after the whole thing crashed, I mean, there were politicians involved. I mean, it was just a big scandal, and, and there was just corruption on just a massive scale. I mean, there was government officials involved in it. But like you said, I mean, it seemed like a slam dunk because it was like the, the British Crown gave the South Sea Trading Company a monopoly to trade with South America. And there was like tons of gold coming out of South America at this time. The Spanish were taking, were stealing gold from the Incas and just taking it out. And so they're like, wow, government monopoly, and all that gold. I mean, boom, sign me up. But it was just really just a case of poor, poor company management and that particular firm, which is what brought that firm down. But just to go back to your point about Isaac Newton and being able to do complex math but not understand the movement of markets and, and stock prices is a perfect example of how looking at investments in a purely academic sense and not considering mm -hmm. the psychology of market participants is completely a fool's errand. Because if you don't account mm -hmm. for the irrationality of participants, you're going to completely get burned. Animal spirits. <laughs> yeah, it may work well in a textbook or in mathematical formulas, but in practice, in reality, it doesn't work that way. I mean, studying these bubbles has to do really more with probability theory than investment analysis. Because, I mean, investment analysts, they can go and you know, look at the intrinsic value of a company and try to calculate that. But as far as how prices increase and then decline and then protecting yourself from those bubbles and from those massive price corrections, probability theory really makes a lot of sense. And it make, makes more sense than investment analysis when, when you study, especially things like Bitcoin. I mean, how can you possibly calculate the intrinsic value of, of Bitcoin? I mean, it's practically impossible. You don't even have a balance sheet there. I mean, really, probability theory really makes more sense in studying, you know, things like Bitcoin and, and other asset bubbles. Are you alluding to the random walk theory of asset prices? No. <laughs> I mean, the random walk theory, because the, the gentleman who is a man by the name of Burton Malkiel, when you're talking about efficient markets, just the existence of Warren Buffett proves that markets are not 100% efficient. I mean, there's going to be inefficiencies there, but you can still use probability theory in other methods, not necessarily modern portfolio theory, which, which is really, really flawed. Okay, last bubble on the agenda, tulip mania. I think more and more people are starting to have heard of this one. Oh, yeah. Tulip mania is just like this 
phase pretty much inspired by the Dutch at the golden age of their time, like in the mid-17th century. Tulips were seen as like this exclusive luxurious item. And so the Dutch would go around and, and started uh, creating these uh, futures, uh, uh, these uh, contracts where people could uh, invest in exchange and, and trading for tulips. But the problem occurred is the term in Dutch is called windhandel, but it literally translates to wind trade. And so you'd have these marketplaces where people would exchange futures, uh, future contracts without actually, it's like you could have ownership of an asset or in this case, in tulip bulbs and you would trade it with someone, but you, you didn't actually have to have physical possession of that asset to, to have the exchange complete. And then so you'd have this change of the hand or what they call wind trade where people were constantly changing hands. And so that kind of alludes to what we mentioned earlier with the greater fool theory, especially now in today's times, you go on your phone or on your computer and you go online and, and you perform a trade at whatever brokerage platform you use. And you may not have physical, the actual stock certificate in your hand, but you know that you've traded stock with someone else. And so this nuance of high, high frequency trading in recent times is just kind of like reminded me or I'm seeing the parallel with what happened with the Dutch and, and how they engaged in the tulip mania. I actually haven't heard that before about there being the futures and, and the paper trading as opposed to like physical settlement. That mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense to me in terms of enabling the speculation and the price action. Right. So this actually starts to put Bitcoin in not as crazy a light. Apparently, over the process of six months, tulips went up 2,000% and then crashed down 99% mm -hmm. after that. <laughs> Apparently, some tulip bulbs sold for more than even river houses at the time, which is so crazy to think. Just a flower selling for more than a house, which today, if you think of that, like $300,000 maybe. <laughs> I mean, they sold for 10 times more than the annual salary of a skilled craftsman. It's insane. But to really study, you know, the things like tulip main and all these bubbles, you know, you get into behavioral finance. But there's a thought that I want to bounce off both of you. A lot of these bubbles, at least most of them, are fueled by debt. People borrowing money to purchase these assets. And as far as the cryptocurrencies, I believe the same thing could be happening. And it's so easy because with these cryptos going sky high and people just, you know, you just borrow money on a credit card pretty much i mean so anybody can pretty much buy bitcoin or anything but backing up from from cryptos you know you got the housing bubble dot com the crash in 1929 the banking sector is just intertwined in, in a lot of these pretty much all of them yeah i would definitely agree with that there's nothing wrong necessarily with an asset price of anything just like going up a lot quickly but you have to think about why that is happening. And if it's happening because people are not only buying into it, but buying with money that they don't actually have, or like Stephen was saying about Tulip Mania, if they're buying futures, like they don't actually have the physical tulips, mm -hmm. then it allows for an overextension that has to eventually, there's a day of reckoning where you have to do accounting and rebalance the books per se. So that is really what creates the second half of the bubble. If you enable the prices to go up, then you have to have the day of reckoning for them to come back to where they originally were, pretty much. So I would definitely, I would definitely agree with that debt-financed speculation contributing to the bubbles. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree as well. I think it's more or less like a game of musical chairs. And I'm going to make a second reference to Margin Call. But that scene, it's like, I think he's like the president of the, of the investment bank. To paraphrase, he says that the music is about to stop. And so I think people get caught up in the quote unquote music being played around them. I think it's like two part of, yeah, debt is a big reason, but also how do people break down information and how do they actually consume it? Like, I don't know why Bitcoin price surging is constantly breaking news all of a sudden. I mean, it's been around since 08, 09, but, you know, there's this hype around it. And so like this hype has to come from somewhere. And so I think just to tie into what Dallas had mentioned earlier, it's you can't have that fool's errand of you're just performing this analysis without actually taking into fact that there's some essence of rational behavior that needs to be factored into the accounting aspect as well. So I think it's a confluence of things, but I definitely do agree that is a big catalyst for bubbles. Yeah. And just to tie it all back together to our current situation, I think a lot of what we're seeing today and what we will see going forward is going to be related to the crash in 2008. And the response that we've seen by central banks and in the money system of quantitative easing and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So I don't think you can look at our market today without considering that. That plus investor psychology and like how people will choose to participate in markets and going forward, what that means, maybe cryptocurrencies are in a bubble right now, but maybe that could continue on tenfold or a hundredfold, you know, that it, that really is possible mm-hmm. if the money mm-hmm. is out there and we're only at the second quarter or, or third quarter, you know, like who knows? It's, it's really hard to say. You know, what would actually be a good a litmus test is you have certain places around the world that are actually like India. I know is a big example. India's been really adamant on, on morphing towards a cashless society. So they've gotten rid of a lot of like uh, large denominations so how would that impact the marketplace in general, like uh, for a money supply? And long story short, I feel like if someone wants to test out the utility of, of a cryptocurrency market space, then how would it play out in places like India where they're trying to implement this cashless society? But India is also kind of a stickier situation because it has a significant population. But I know that you have countries, I think like Estonia, where the demographics are more homogenized where people are invested in trying out that whole quote-unquote cashless, more digital society, so to speak. So I think those type of sovereign nations that are interested in, in more of the digital space could prove to be a litmus test for how we engage in, in this new technology. Because I, I do agree with what you had mentioned, Dallas, with measuring the impact of quantitative easing and, and how central banks are printing money. But what if we have this reaction where cash is actually taken out of our hands. And so how would that marginalize or maybe even open up the ecosystem, the cryptocurrency ecosystem? Maybe that's a topic for another time, but I just feel like those are indirectly correlated. A little teaser for the future. I mean, something else. We haven't really gone through a major bear market in stocks since the cryptocurrency phenomenon hit. And so I mean, when we go through a next recession which is going to happen in just a matter of time. And then stock market crashes in the economy and people get laid off. I'm interested to, to watch the asset price of, of Bitcoin and Ether and all these things, you know, when that happens. I'm betting they're probably going to crash too, along with stock market. Oh, yeah, totally. It'll be interesting to see who, who comes out. Well, actually, to that point, 
what I strongly believe in is that because of the whole fiat money system and being debt-based and people always owing more than they actually have, it is natural that in a liquidity crisis, all assets become correlated, regardless of if they're not mm-hmm. fundamentally related in their usage or intrinsic value, the prices will move together and go down all together because people are just needing to raise cash to pay off debts. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this has been amazingly stimulative conversation and could keep going, but we should probably cut it off. <laughs> Thank you both for uh, contributing to this. Uh, I think this has really been an uh, interesting discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for having us, dude. Absolutely, man. It was great. All right. That'll wrap things up for this episode. So catch us next time for another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast.